Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Some of you may remember that uh, several years ago, I led a recovery ministry called RAW. Uh, It took place in a living room in someone's home. I invited people who were in various uh, avenues or various journeys of recovery to come and join me to read God's word, to understand what it means to be a believer who is struggling with addiction. how, How do you put that together? How do you live a life um, that is centered in Christ, but is ultimately focused uh, while being focused on what one needs to do to maintain their sobriety. And there was a woman who came in, she started attending, and I don't think she was a believer, certainly not at the time that this story happened, but um, she was not a believer and she would come to the Bible studies without preparation. She would not have done the reading that she needed to do. She would never answer a question during the ministry and she sat like this. For the majority of the time. And oftentimes, this is not uncommon. People come into those ministries, especially people who are struggling with shame and traumas and things like that, and they often don't want to participate immediately, so you let them have their time. But eventually, I pulled her aside after the meeting and I told her what I noticed. I noticed that this is happening. You seem to be communicating this. What's going on? She said, I don't prepare because whenever I read the Bible, I feel bad. So I just don't read it. I said, okay, tell me about that. She says, every time I open something up and it says that uh, I'm a sinner or it says that, I am, uh, uh, that I've done something wrong, a transgressor, I hear this voice in my spirit that says, you're awful. How dare you think you can participate? You're trying to be a Christian Look what they want you to be. This is who you're supposed to be. You're not even close. She said, I kept hearing this voice in my head as I read, so I've stopped reading. So we talked about that, and we talked about the difference between hearing the voice of God convicting us of our sin and hearing the voice of Satan condemning us in our shame. We talked some more, and I said, um, or I asked her the question, so when you are reading, what is it that you're getting? She says nothing. I don't understand one word that I'm reading. So not only is she not understanding what she's reading, she's feeling guilt by everyone in the group that she should be reading and should be prepared. Everyone in the group are putting all the dots together and answering questions, and they seem joyous, yet when she reads the Bible, she feels shame. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me like this has been the exact experience that I have spoken to many Christians, many people seeking to work, to live in the word, to live a life centered in Christ when they first open the Bible. Sometimes, after a long time. I know there are seasons in my life where Satan allows to start speaking in my ear. It says, you know, you call yourself a Christian. 
What kind of Christian would do this or say that? Or the most dangerous one, think that. The very thing that God has promised would bring us truth and joy and life often feels to us or can feel like to us like nothing but condemnation, shame, fear, and confusion. Why? Why? The answer, in short, I'll give you the ending at the beginning, is that you can only understand the scripture viewed through the lens of Jesus. All of scripture, from in the beginning to come now, Lord Jesus, beginning to end, Alpha Omega is all centered in Christ. Today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. It's a little bit tricky of a text because I'm moving into it mid-thought. So it's, if I wanted to start at the beginning, I'd basically have to start at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We don't got time for that. So we're going to jump on the on-ramp here at verse 12. Prior to this, Paul is discussing his ministry and the confidence that he has in God through Christ alone. The proof that he is in the will of God is the transformed lives of the Corinthians. They say, who is your letter of recommendation? Saying that you have the credentials. He says, you are my letters of recommendation. Paul says that something new happened in them when God wrote the law on the tablet of their hearts, supplanting the law of sin and death written on tablets, the Mosaic law, written in real life flesh in the heart of the believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is here where he turns to the topic of spiritual blindness, of those who can read the scripture with a hardness of heart towards Messiah, with an inability to see what's actually happening. It's like they're wearing a veil. And he makes some astonishing claims that relate to our own ability as believers or those not yet believers and our ability to read and understand the word for ourselves. So let's turn to that page to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. The first thing I want us to see as we're reading through this text is that it is impossible to understand the scriptures apart from beholding Christ in them. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, they, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. You see, it's possible to read Scripture and not see what is really there. In our house, we're reading through the Bible. Several of us are reading through the Bible rather quickly. Some of us are doing it in three months. And so every day, we're reading chapter upon chapter upon chapter. I don't know how many times I'll be in one room and I'll hear something from the other room. Hey, what does this mean? Because it seems like we can't get more than a couple of verses in. We have a question already. It seems like especially we get into some of the books like Leviticus, where it gets really, really deep and really, really down. How, what is actually going on? The truth is, is that when we read scripture, apart from discerning Christ in it, apart from seeing how Jesus is the culmination of what we're reading, apart from seeing how what we're reading here in the Old Testament is often just the shadow of the reality of Christ in the new, until we come to terms with the fact that 
all of the Bible from A to Z is centered in Christ, we're going to have trouble. A veil will lie over our eyes. We will not see what is the point, what is the purpose and the outcome of the scripture. In fact, this speaking of Moses, this Moses and a veil being over his face actually comes from an account in Exodus 34. It says this, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony. Do you remember Charlton Heston walking down with the two tablets? When he walks down the mountain with the tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken, uh, commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until it was time to speak with him. Just being in the presence of God, the glory of God in the tabernacle shone and reflected upon Moses to such a degree that the people of Israel were enough. I can't do it. We can't see it. So Moses would wear a veil. This is the same motif that Paul is now using here in the New Testament. He's saying in in 2 Corinthians, he's saying that to this day, when the Jews or those who are seeking to read the word apart from the Spirit of God, discerning Christ in them, read the word, there's a veil over their face they cannot see. How often do we speak to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and loved ones, we say something that's truth, and it just doesn't stick. It can't be understood. It can't be discerned. It seems like we're speaking a different language because, in fact, we are. The language of the Bible is Christ and Christ alone. Paul says that the glory of the law, the glory of Moses' face in presence in the presence of God was so great it needed to be hidden from the Israelites and that that giving of the law, that Old Testament was fading from the moment it began. But that glory that was fading was being foreshadowed to the ultimate glory of the one who would be the embodiment of all of God's will, Jesus Christ. It has been said that Christ is concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New. B.B. Warfield, famous theologian, says, said, he's been with the Lord for a long time, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before but it brings into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not perceived at all before. Christ is in the Old Testament. Christ is present there, and it's through him that it is unlocked. In fact, the entire scripture, because we can read scripture apart from Jesus, and what it looks like is, you're bad, do better. 
I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing I'm bad, do better. It should be I'm bad, he's best, he did, now go try. And trust that it's all going to work out in the end. Because Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our salvation. Christ is the central character, the subject, the object, the predicate of the entire Bible. The reason, the purpose, the alpha, the omega. The cause and the goal, the purpose and the result. Interesting, I was telling somebody today um, about something I had read. It's actually uh, Jewish tradition. There's a whole house, sort of a whole school of Jewish tradition that views the Torah, okay, the Old Testament as being the very fabric, like the building blocks of reality itself, okay? And so in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created, and then there's a word in Hebrew that's not translated because there's no translation for it. It's called an object, direct object marker. That direct object marker is the word et. It begins with aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it ends in tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So this school of Judaism read, in the beginning, God created the Torah, the heavens, and the earth. Now, what does that mean? When you read John 1.1 and John says, in the beginning was the word, that idea of word and how the word built everything and through the word, Jesus was everything built. Through the embodiment of who God is, the law, the truth. And we look at Revelation and Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Translated into Hebrew, I am the Aleph and the Tav. It is all about me. Everything is about me. The entire scripture is about me. It in some way points to my life, death, resurrection, and salvation in me. Look for me there. John in chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is telling the Pharisees who thought they had found life in the scripture, but didn't behold Jesus. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I'm often astonished when I read passages like this, when I read statements like this, because maybe you don't realize it, but the New Testament didn't exist when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. When you talk about Jesus opening the minds of the people reading so that they would see Jesus, they're not opening up the book of John. In the beginning was the word. They're opening up the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. It is there that Christ resides, as much as in the New Testament, but in a room dimly lighted, as B.B. Warfield would say. Look for Christ as a gem there, and you will find him. We look at the word and we say, well, what must I do? It's a wrong question. What must I become? It's a better question. The best question is, what am I becoming? When I look to the word and I behold Christ, I'm beginning to see who it is that I will become in the power of God. Luke 24, 44 through 45 says, Then he said to them, again, this is Jesus. This is after his resurrection. They're walking on the Emmaus Road with two disciples who think that their Messiah and friend had just been killed. 
No idea that he'd been resurrected. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms, that's all of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand scripture. When we read scriptures apart from discerning Christ in them, it leads to several really dangerous feelings. Some serious things that can prevent us from interacting with Christ, can prevent us from truly hearing Christ's word in the scripture. The first is despondency. If I read scripture apart from Christ, I'm a terrible, dirty sinner who has no hope because the ultimate outcome of my choices, my sinful heart, is death. Maybe I can't understand anything, so I'm despondent because of my ignorance. Despondency. Or we might feel pride. We read the scripture with the idea that it's possible to live the Christian life, that it's possible to do everything that God is asking us to do. Or pride, or unbelief rather, where we open the scripture and we say, this is just another voice in the cacophony of voices in my life. There's my friend John, my sister Jacqueline, and God. And they all get a fair shake in what it is that I need to live and how I need to live and how I need to act. They all get their opinion. Instead of opening God's word for what it is, that God superintended the writing of this book over the course of over a thousand years by 40 different authors, that his message of salvation in Christ would be known for eternity. I could do a whole series on just how we got the Bible. It's a miracle. God wrote this through men and women who spoke his will. Perhaps the most dangerous feeling when we read the Bible is apathy. I don't know about you, but some mornings I get up and it's time to read and I, I sit before the word and I say, I need to check that daily box, devotions, done. Instead of, we are sitting now in the very presence of God himself who is shouting to us through these writings. And so we take it lightly. When we read the scripture without discerning Christ and we take it lightly in a sense of apathy, we inoculate ourselves from its power. I was once watching a uh, show about uh, snake handlers. This guy was collecting venom in order to make antitoxins for people who were bitten. Over the course of his career, he'd been doing it for like 40 years. They asked him, how many times you got bitten? He says, oh, I get bit all the time. It's like, well, why are you still standing here? His like, fingers were all mangled up and stuff. Why are you still standing here if you get bit so often? He goes, sometimes I actually prick myself a little bit with it. Because over time, he's built a tolerance to these venoms, and it's allowed him to be safe in those accidental bites that would happen. In a similar way, when we just give ourselves a little bit or allow God's word into our ears without allowing it to do what it's supposed to do in our heart, move us to act and to believe and to trust, to repent. We end up inoculating ourselves from its power. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, I've heard that a thousand times. I fall short. Oh, I fall short? Yes, Adam, you fall short. There's a principle in neurology called sensory gating. 
We live in a world of so many stimuli. And if we paid attention to all of it, we would be absolutely paralyzed. And our brain knows that. There are certain things that happen that we can sort of just move to the side of our consciousness because they're not important. We see them all the time. Listen to God's word enough. Come on a Sunday morning enough. Hear the same phrases again and again. Hear God's word preached again and again. Pretty soon it becomes another stimulus that we put off to the side and say, man, I can't wait for that preaching to be done so we can get to Michael's new song, which is always better. We come because we feel it's the important thing to do. We come because we want our kids to live a certain type of life. We don't know what it is. We just know it's better than the one we have. We say it's the right thing to do. Good people go to church, don't they? So then we show up, we hear the word, we can memorize it, recite it, but then we go off, maybe not commit the sin, but we're doing it in our mind and we have an attitude of distance from the Lord. We need to pray that God breaks through our hardness of heart to that place that says, yeah, I've heard this before. And God will do it. It's a terrible thing though. Because we are stubborn and our hearts are often hardened. And God, knowing that, often breaks through our hardness of heart in the power of the Holy Spirit, but usually through a consequence something to jolt us alive and say, you realize what you're doing? The young man in the pigsty in the story of the prodigal son. Suddenly I came to myself and said self. That wasn't self, that was Holy Spirit saying, look at where you are right now. The Jews who viewed scripture apart from the Christ in them were hardened to the truth. Their minds were hardened, Paul says. There was a stubborn disbelief a a refusal to see what God was revealing. And we're all guilty of this sin. When we read without a readiness to obey, when we read without a readiness to repent or to believe, when we don't allow God's word down into the deepest recesses of our sinful hearts for fear of what he will do when he finds it or what he will ask us to do when we come to terms with it, we ignore it. We turn it off. We think of something else. We go shallow or smooth out difficult verses that say things that run contrary to what we wish it would have said. You see, in our natural state, in our sin, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we are unable to see Christ in Scripture. We read through the lens of false expectations. Christ is a heavenly Santa who gets me out of jail free and gives me whatever I ask for. We read through the lens of pride. Yeah, I've already heard this. I can actually recite this. I found myself the other day reading through scripture and getting to like the genealogies and just going like, blah, 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 and then read some more and then get to another one, blah, 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 blah. And the spirit was like, hold on a second there. You need to learn how to go through all of this because the begot, That verb begot and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so is as important as the word Jesus in the New Testament. It's all my word and it's all there for a reason. We can read through the lens of our own view of self, cherry-picking whatever reinforces our self-worth or what disproves it. See, I knew I was terrible. So we read with, what does God say that I'm doing wrong today? 
We read through the lens of our theological suppositions, reading verses that are intended to move us to action, to think differently, to challenge our worldview about what it means to be saved by grace. And we explain away things in order to fit a theological worldview, a theological set of principles that we hold to. In other words, I can read something that says that it sure seems like I can lose my salvation, but tell myself, no, I'm a Calvinist. So it can't mean that. It must mean something else. And instead of allowing God to speak for himself right from his mouth, we read through the lens of unbelief. These were sinful guys who were just inspired maybe by what they understood as their religious expression, but it's not actual truth. So I'll take it as just an opinion until it works for me. So second thing we're going to see. So it's impossible to read scripture apart from seeing Christ in them. Second, it's impossible to behold Christ in the scripture apart from faith. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That moment when we stand before Christ and say, you're right. (laughs) You're right. I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do to save myself. The whole sweep of scripture says that God is the savior and that I cannot save myself. Lord, I give myself to you. Save me. Something happens. The Bible talks about it in terms of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes in and lives within us and begins to empower us and work within us and open our eyes to the truth. Apart from that Holy Spirit and by faith, it is impossible for us to behold Jesus. Faith is believing God's word and embracing it in trust for yourself. And true faith has an element of repentance in it. You see, repentance is an integral and indivisible aspect of biblical faith. We'll say, well, yeah, I believe what the word says, but I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing. So what we end up doing is we say, all right, I'm going to continue on my sin. I'm going to continue doing what I know I'm not supposed to be doing. I know it's contrary to God's will, but instead I'll just add on top of it other good things. I'll believe God in all these other areas except this area right here. And so we try to work to have our cake and eat it too. Yet true faith brings out a repentance which is an attitude of humility that confesses before God that he is right, perfect, and true in his entire being. And I am not. When we turn to Christ in faith with repentance, what becomes dim is enlightened and what is silent becomes sound. I don't know, I think about my own salvation and the testimony of salvations that I hear around me and often, not always, hear me. Sometimes we want to hear a story that says, and then one day I realized I was a sinner after hearing John 3.16 preached at a Billy Graham crusade. And then this moment where I suddenly saw the light. We sing it, I saw the light. Praise the Lord, I saw the light, right? And we impose that idea of God's working in the life of a sinner upon people and they say, well, I, I don't know, I just was always in the church. Yeah, I mean, I realize that I'm a sinner every day. And we say, well, there's got to be more of a testimony there. There's got to be more of a thing. So can we get you to come to a place where you say, this happened? For me, though, it was like that. 
You know my story. In my sleep, went to bed a sinner. Unbelieving sinner woke up a believing sinner. It was something happened. It was just like someone turned the switch on. And I know some of you have a testimony like that as well. One of my, I was going to show one, but I'd start crying and I might start crying just explaining it. But one of my favorite videos are watching kids getting their cochlear implants turned on. Okay. What an amazing blessing of God that he has allowed us to be able to do this, to be able to find technology that would allow people who are deaf to hear. Baby can't hear anything. And they're like, okay, we're about to turn it on. Here's mom's voice for the first time. It's like my spiritual cochlear implant got turned on. And I heard the voice of my father for the first time. And suddenly this became real. When we read the scripture, apart from hearing the voice of God through the spirit within us and accepting this by faith, it's like being deaf and not being able to read lips, but just seeing a move and trying to discern what's being said. When we approach this by faith, our implant gets turned on. And Christ himself has removed that veil. We now can behold the fullness of the glory of God in Christ because Christ has once and for all dealt with the sin that prevented us from doing it in the first place. Sovereign act of grace. We've done nothing to deserve it. And God, out of his love for his beloved, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the sacrifice of his son, has saved us to hear his word, to live in obedience, to be reflections of his glory here on earth. This idea of veiling is throughout the scripture. Veils serve as a partition between often the sinful humanity and the holiness of God. We see something like it the first time uh, that God reveals himself to Moses. Moses says, show me all your glory. God says, no, I show you your glory, you're going to disintegrate. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock, put my hand over you, and I'll pass by and you'll just see basically my back. You need protection from my glory because of your sin. In the tabernacle, the tent that was later built, that was the meeting place of God with man, had a veil that isolated the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle. We see it again in the temple. The holy of holies in the temple with a veil blocking it. The only one who went in, the high priest, once a year. But when Jesus died... The moment he gave up his breath and died for the sin of you and me, the veil was torn. Mark 15, 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom. God did it. God in Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we access that grace when we believe God that Christ is Lord and our only Savior. Third principle. Our capacity to behold Christ in the scripture is a work of the Spirit, not self. This, doesn't, this means we don't try harder 
It means we trust harder. It means we embrace the Spirit's work in ourselves more so we can discern Christ there and thereby be changed. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here in this text, you'll see a blurring of the persons of the Trinity. You'll see that Lord now is applied to the Holy Spirit. What is what's going on there? So the question is, is Jesus Lord or Spirit Lord? The answer is yes, same Lord. The Trinity is three persons. This is a mystery. The Trinity is three persons in one Godhead who are so aligned in will and purpose and often role that what the other one does or one wills, the other one does or wills. I just got a vision of me asking a parent, can I do this? And them saying, well, what'd your mother say? Whatever she says, I say. It's kind of like that in the Trinity. What's more, the scriptures testify that the spirit of God is the spirit of Christ. One. This is an important idea, this idea of the Holy Spirit within us and the necessity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we leave it aside to our own peril because the Spirit is God, the Spirit is Lord. The Spirit is the one through whom we are connected to God through Christ. The evangelical church in many circles, in an effort to minimize some of the abuses of the ideas of surrounding the Holy Spirit, have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And have turned Christianity into a stoic, academic, heartless sort of endeavor. The person and work of the Spirit, though, is the one who applies our redemption. It's too important. When we see and understand what the Spirit does in our day-to-day, we recognize that we cannot not embrace Him. We must. Spirit has several important roles. The first is revelation. The Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the blind sinner to the reality of Christ. Cochlear implant turned on. John 16 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, this is Jesus talking, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit takes the things of God and reveals it to the child of God. The Spirit illuminates, 1 Corinthians 2. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. You see, we cannot understand the things of God apart from the Holy Spirit's work in us. 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, the Bible's talking about that idea when we're trying to relate truth to somebody who's an unbeliever that they just can't get. It's because it's only through the power Holy Spirit can it be revealed to them, can it be illuminated to their heart. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, declares us holy, but then grows us in holiness over time, conforming us to the image of Christ. Titus 3. But Christ saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And finally, the Holy Spirit empowers us. When we read the word and he opens our eyes to behold Christ, the image of the one who died on our behalf, he empowers us to do exactly what Christ is calling us to do. Ephesians 3, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, according to the riches of his glory, that that he may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being. And in context, this is through the Holy Spirit. It's all about Christ being beheld in the work of Holy, the Holy Spirit within us that transforms us, that changes us. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same Image. Oh, I'm sorry. Go back. Verse 17. Now those, the Lord... Wait, no. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have been freed from the old covenant, the law. Paul calls the law of sin and death. The law that could reveal the character of God in its perfection. The law that was intended to preserve the nation of Israel till the coming Messiah. The law that condemns those who seek to live by it. The law that demonstrates that we need a Savior. We are freed from that for what, by what Christ has done. But for all that the law, law could do, it could never transform a sinful heart. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So now, through the Spirit, we can behold Christ without any hindrances. Of course, Satan loves to tell us that we need to cover up again. We need to put a veil over our faces. We don't want to see the glory. So we do more works. We hide behind shame. We fake and we are hypocrites. We make excuses for ourselves to not have to do things. It's not a new trick. We see it in the garden even from the beginning. Adam and Eve sinned. First thing they do is cover their shame with fig leaves. What's your fig leaf? (laughs) We all got some fig leaf. We're hiding behind something, not wanting to see all of God's glory in Christ through the pages, lest what it should mean for us. And instead of turning to him in trust and faith and repentance and saying, Lord, you've done for me that which I could not do for myself, we continue to hide. All right couple brief applications. So when in the word, what does this all mean then? When in the word, first, ask for the Spirit's guidance when reading scripture before seeking the opinion of others. 
When I am preparing a message, when I'm doing a Bible study, even when I was in, in school, the professors always said, do your sermon first and read commentaries last. Trust the Spirit of God that he's revealing exactly what it is that is supposed to be revealed. This is one of the blessings of when I get up to preach, I don't have to get it perfectly right. I just have to get up and speak. I do my work. I trust that the Lord has prepared something, but in the end, I deliver it. There have been times where I've delivered what I thought were, and this might be one of them, I don't know, technically terrible sermons. And people will come up afterwards and say, my Lord... The Lord, when you said this, the Lord did this in my heart. Oh, praise God for the Spirit's work in your heart and in mine for doing this. There have been times where I have gone up to someone after a message. They said, when you said this, which I didn't say, they said the Holy Spirit came in and showed me this whole thing happening in my heart. And I feel renewed and have perspective. Glory to God. Glory to God. When you're reading the word and you don't know what it means, ask God. God, I don't know what this says, but help me to understand. Two, embrace what the Lord has revealed and leave the rest for another day. This is a really important one. There are times we read the scripture from verse one and try to understand every turn of thought and phrase from beginning to end all the way through. Nothing wrong with wanting to understand scripture. It's important. What the problem is, is we get so buried in that and then feel shame because we can't understand what it is we're supposed to be getting from it. We stop reading it altogether. So even me, there are times I'll open up the word, I'll say, Lord, give me one thing. Show me that one word that you want me to have. I'll read a chapter and I'll get one word. Sometimes it's kind of stupid. Sometimes it's like a nothing word that means nothing, that doesn't tell me to do something, think something, but God did something in it. It sparked a whole movement of the spirit that as I sat there and ruminated and thought about, meditated about what God wanted for me in my life, he used that word. Expect that when you get before the Lord in his scripture, trusting the Holy Spirit. Lord, what is it that you want me to see here? What is it that you're asking me to do? And be willing to hear it. But everything you don't get, You'll get it next time. You grow as a spiritual person just like anyone else does, just like in the physical realm. God will give it to you when it's time to give it to you. Third, do not gloss over scriptures that are painful, but look to Christ in response to them. Sometimes we avoid areas of scripture or we read a passage or a text that doesn't feel good and so we move on. Instead, we need to let God's Spirit inflict what has to happen in our hearts to get that spot. The reason that we can do that is because we know that Christ has paid the penalty for it. Sitting before Scripture, knowing that it's God speaking to you about a very specific thing in your life, 
as a child of God sitting in that place and God having a conversation with you and saying, this is you. I want to show you what you're doing. I want you to feel what it is I'm trying to bring out can be done from a place of safety because Christ has died for that sin. And we're now able to hear it, to trust Christ, to repent from our current way of seeing things and to move on without fear of condemnation. And fourth, never, ever, ever forget that you are transformed by God's spirit and not by works. This is important because we will seek to be saved by the Spirit, as Paul says, and to work out the rest by works. There's nothing you can do to make yourself better. All of the evidence points to the opposite. Yet God did in Christ through the power of the Spirit in us that which we could not do for ourselves. Those who read the Old Testament with the veil kept saying, well, we can do this, we can do this, we're going to try harder. And they tried harder and tried harder and tried harder. And it never happened because it cannot. We are fundamentally broken. Sin has invaded the very fabric of the creation, including our hearts. And it's only through the power of God himself that we can be transformed. Of course, this doesn't mean we don't put effort in. We try, but in the end, it is God who does it. So glory must go to him and the source of that change must be sought in him. So in conclusion, it's impossible, three points. It's impossible to understand the scriptures apart from beholding Christ in them. Secondly, it's impossible to behold Christ in the scriptures apart from faith. And third, our capacity to behold Christ in the scriptures is a work of the spirit not ourselves. You see, we waste precious time looking to put a veil back on. Trying to understand the word without taking the veil off and then being despondent and irritated because we can't see what's written. God's calling you to put it all down, to see his son in all his glory, to behold him on the throne with unveiled face. Take everything off and look to Christ in the word. Look to Christ for your salvation. Look to Christ for your justification before the Father. To the lamb who was slain from the beginning of the foundations of the world for you. Look to the Son and believe. Behold him in his righteousness, the righteousness that is given to you freely by grace. As we do this, as we behold him, we see your transformation as of frozen, icy heart of disbelief and as it melts in the heat of his glory. Fear not. For your transformation into the very image of God proceeds from one degree of glory to the next. You're already there. It only gets better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, uh, for the truth and for the Spirit. Lord, we really thank you for the Spirit that allows us to see Christ in the pages of Scripture, that allows us to behold Christ in our lives. Help us, Lord, and, and forgive us where we seek uh, to work out um, our own salvation without having an eye 
to the one who gave it to us without having an eye to the one who empowers us to do it, the Holy Spirit. For it is you who works and wills within us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a new sense of direction as we open your word. Lord, for those of us who have not been in your word, we pray that you would open our eyes of our hearts to give us a a hunger for it. We pray as we open the word, trusting you, seeing you in there, that you would change us, that you would transform us in your glory from one degree of glory to the next. We thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.